Do it sound like I'm quiet to you? As loud as I'm hollering, you call me quiet? Well, this is a report. I'm hollering loud because I can back up every word. And I'll whoop any man in the world, and I want everybody out there on TV to know it. I am the greatest. The referee stops the fight. It'll be scored as a technical knockout. Muhammad Ali retains a heavyweight. I'm Jonathan Ike. This is Chasing Ali Podcast. Today I'm going to tell a story that I think is just a little gem. I think it, it could be a movie in and of its own. Um, it's the story of how I got Muhammad Ali's record player. At least I think it's Muhammad Ali's record player. I'm pretty sure it's Muhammad Ali's record player. One of the things I do when I'm writing a book is I keep an eye on eBay, just out of curiosity to see what kind of things come up. It's, it's a great randomizer. You find things um, that you would never expect to find. You find pictures that may not be historic, but that tell you something about what was going on in this person's life. On eBay, I purchased Muhammad Ali cologne, which must have been at least 30 years old, and I'm holding some right now. It smells god-awful. Um, I've purchased all kinds of strange things, photos of Ali with women who I can't identify. Um, I've purchased, oh, God, Ali uh, bed sheets, um, which I am not taking out of the package. They just look cool as is. But one day on eBay, I found a listing for Muhammad Ali's record player. And it said it was from his childhood home, and it was accompanied by this long, it must have been a 2,000-word description of how this person came to own Muhammad Ali's record player. And it was a giant, it was a picture of this giant, sort of a white, light-colored light wood. Um, the, the, the picture showed an, a record player that looked like it was from the, the 40s or 50s. Um, and there was a long description by the guy saying that he was the son of one of Muhammad Ali's early lawyers, back when Ali was still Cassius Clay, this guy... Um, had gotten to know the, the Clay family, and he had some of the Clay family's belongings, and he was selling this record player. The, 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 the price, the opening bid was $250, and nobody had bid on it yet, so I decided it's probably not Muhammad Ali's record player, but it's so interesting that it's worth $250 just to find out the story behind it. If nobody else bids on it, I'll own the fake Muhammad Ali record player. So I bid on it. Nobody else did. I won it for $250, and... I was prepared uh, to send in the, uh, the the money pay over PayPal, and um, I got an email from the guy who was selling it saying, don't send me the money yet. Um, I'm going to save you the shipping cost. I'm going to drive to Chicago and bring you the record player. I thought, well, this is definitely a scam. This is, you know, too good to be true. But, you know, so I only spent the 250 I didn't have to spend the 75 for shipping and, and uh, waiting for this guy to show up and deliver it to me, thinking it's never going to come. I'm never going to hear from him again. But then one day he calls and says, I'm, I'm just an hour outside Chicago. I've got your record player. Where should I meet you? I think I better pick a public place because this could be a, a psycho killer. Um, so I meet him at uh, Caribou Coffee on Clark Street, and he pulls up in this big van, and we go to the back of the van, and he opens it the back and takes out the record player that I saw in the pictures. And there's a whole bunch of other boxes in there. It looks like this guy's... Um, moving or, or living on the road. And he's this enormous guy. He's like 6'5", 280, um, with long hair and a fanny pack and a NASA t-shirt. I remember thinking, this is an interesting dude. His name is uh, Frank Sadlow. And he says that he knew Ali for years and years, for decades, and that when Ali's mother died, he helped Ali clean out the house. And that's how he got Ali's record player. I thought, well, that's a plausible story. That could be true. And he 
starts telling me the story of, of how his dad was a uh, was a lawyer, mostly worked in the ghetto. His dad's you know he's white, and and his dad was a white lawyer working in the in the poor black neighborhoods of of Louisville in the 40s and 50s, and came to represent Cassius Clay Sr., who was often in trouble for driving drunk and getting into bar fights, and got to know the Clay family, and actually wrote up the first professional contract for for Muhammad Ali when he was still Cassius Clay. But then the family dumped him and hired a more established um, big name lawyer and um, and his father no longer had any dealings but remained friends with the clays and then when when muhammad retired and got sick this guy frank sadlow ended up helping him out drove him to the airport and things and helped clean out his mother's house when he died and that's how he came to have this record player and it was just a fascinating story i love this guy he turns out to be super sweet and um I had to go pick up my daughter from school that day, and Frank came with me and went and picked up my daughter and went back to Caribou and talked some more. And he, he said, I have some other stuff in the car I'd like to show you. And I thought, great, um, what do you got? And he goes back to the, the van, and he takes out these boxes, and there is the original contract that his father drew up for for Cassius Clay and his, what it would have been his first professional boxing contract. There are all of these um, legal p- records all of the, from, from Cassius Clay Sr.'s uh, brushes with the law. He's got all of this paperwork, and he starts telling me this story. This is just an amazing story, um, and this is the part that I think um, would make an, a, a sweet movie. Um, Frank Sadlow is, is, is helping Ali in the, in the 1980s, just driving him around, um, because Ali's getting shakier from Parkinson's and can't drive as well anymore. And um, by, the, by the middle 1990s, Frank hadn't seen Ali in years, but he, he showed up at his door one day and asked Ali, and told Ali his father was in the hospital. And Ali just got up instantly from the breakfast table, pushed back his seat and said, let's go. We went to the hospital and spent all day there with, with uh, Frank's father and with everybody else who wanted Ali to come visit. And, and when it was over... Frank was so touched, he thought, nobody ever does anything for Muhammad. Muhammad's always doing stuff for other people. What could I do for Muhammad? And he started thinking that the Olympics were coming up. The 1996 Olympics were going to be in Atlanta. And he knew that Ali really, his, the Olympics launched him. In the 1960 Olympics, this is when Ali became, became famous for the first time. It's when he discovered how big the world was and how many people out there were who, who were going to love him someday. And he really did. He just, he just loved the attention of being on a world stage. But Ali had lost his Olympic medal. Uh, there's a story goes that says that um, he threw it in the river because he was so mad that Louisville was segregated and he couldn't get served in a, in a white-only restaurant. I think that story's bull. I think he lo- just flat out lost it. And his brother told me so. He said, Ali just lost it. You know, it's, um, it happened. And he was sad. He cried and cried. So Frank had the idea that Ali should get, his, should get a new medal and they should give it to him at the Olympics. And maybe he could even light the torch. Maybe he could be the one who lights the Olympic torch um, to start the games. So he goes on this letter-writing campaign in the 1990s. He's working as a waiter at Applebee's at the time. I mean, Frank Sadlow is, 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 is nobody special, but he thinks, you know, why not? Why not? Why can't I convince the Olympics to give Ali a chance to get, let him light the torch? And he shows me the carbon copies back when they had carbon copies of all these letters that he wrote. He shows me the log of all the phone calls he made, calling the mayor of Atlanta, calling the the, the president of Coca-Cola, calling um, the head of the Olympic Committee, calling TV networks, saying Muhammad Ali should light the torch. He's got all the records from this. And he tells the story that he has no idea whether he's getting anywhere. He did get an invitation to come to Atlanta and to meet with the head of the Olympic Committee. He drove you know, from Louisville and 
just to prove that he wasn't. He said he was worried that they were going to think he was a kook. So he brought pictures of him with Ali to show the Olympic officials that he wasn't a kook. And they all thanked him for his time and said goodbye. And he had no idea whether it was getting anywhere. And then right before the Olympics started, he got a call from Ali's friend Howard Bingham saying, Muhammad just wants to thank you. And Frank said he had no idea what he was calling about. Like he put it out of his head. He wasn't really thinking about the Olympic torch. And then he's working as a waiter at Applebee's one night and he's carrying a tray load of food and he's watching out of the corner of his eye. The Olympics are on TV in the restaurant and he sees the torch. Janet Evans the, the, uh, is carrying the, the torch up this ramp and they get to the top and everybody's waiting and wondering who's going to be the one that lights the final flame that's over the Olympic Stadium. And it's been a, a secret. There's been all kinds of speculation. A lot of people think it's going to be Hank Aaron because it's Atlanta and, and Aaron played for the Atlanta Braves. Some people think it's going to be Evander Holyfield, the heavyweight champion who's also from Atlanta. And really nobody has a clue. And you have to remember at this time, Ali has really been out of the spotlight for more than a decade. He's really gone through some hard times. He's He'll show up at a used car lot for a thousand bucks and sign autographs. You know, he'll he'll spend all day at a convention trade booth for, you know, a couple thousand dollars signing autographs. Um, you know, his star has dimmed a little bit, and America has kind of lost sight of him because he's got Parkinson's now. He can't really speak as well. He doesn't look good on TV. Um, he shakes a lot. His arms and hands shake, and he walks slowly. So he's, he's, he's become a little bit of a faded star, and, and we've lost track of him. Um, but then all of a sudden, Janet Evans gets to the top of the ramp at, at the stadium in Atlanta, and she hands the torch off to a figure who emerges from the shadows wearing this all-white tracksuit. And when the crowd sees that it's Muhammad Ali, you don't hear a cheer. You hear. You can, you can check this out on, on YouTube. You can check it out on my website, ChasingAliPodcast.com. You hear a gasp. The crowd sees Ali, and they're stunned. They hadn't seen him in so long. It's Ali, the most beautiful man in the world, the man who conquered the world, who, who made everyone fall in love with him, with his speed, with his beauty, with his, with his voice. And now he's a, he's a shadow of himself. He's, he's trembling. But it reminds them of, of, of this great man and this extraordinary life. And it was almost as if he disappeared and he'd come back. And, oh, we forgot about you, Muhammad. And, and you hear this audible gasp followed by this rippling roar, followed by this enormous applause and a standing ovation. And Ali is up there with this, with this torch in his hand, and this flame is it's shaking. And he's got to put two hands on the torch just to try to stop his arms from shaking. And he leans over to try to light the, the flame that will then go on this pulley up to the top of the stadium and light the stadium's torch. But he can't do it. There's wind blowing, and his arms are shaking too much, and he can't light the wick. And the flame is starting to, to, to lick up toward his arms, and it looks like he's going to burn himself. And it's this unbelievably tense moment. And finally, just when you think he's, someone's going to have to come out and help him, he gets it done. He, he lights that torch, and, and the flame goes up, and, and Ali is, is, is just a hero uh, again in a whole new way because now he's, he's human. You know, he used to be superhuman. He used to be Superman. Um, he was the most beautiful. He was the greatest. And now he's, he's humbled. He's, he's a guy who has trouble lighting a, light, lighting a torch that should have been, you know, an easy job. And, and, and it changes the world's view of him. And, and Frank Sadlow is, is standing with a tray full of food at Applebee's watching this and feeling like, 
he has done something for Ali. He has given Ali back something, this, this unbelievable gift. And he doesn't know whether it was really his doing or not. And we really don't know. I've interviewed dozens of people about the process of how Ali was chosen. And nobody seems to know exactly where the idea began. Um, some people say it was TV executives. Some people say it was Olympic officials who had the idea. And Frank Sadlow is very modest about it. He says, they easily could have come to the same decision without me. I don't know that, that my letters or that my phone calls gave anyone the idea, but maybe it did, maybe it didn't. It doesn't matter. What, what's important is that Muhammad Ali got this honor and got this gift and that the world remembered him and discovered him again. And it's really a huge turning point in Ali's life because after that, the very next day in USA Today, there's a front page story with an interview with Ali and his wife saying that this is his, his rediscovery. This is America embracing him again, somebody who had been the most hated man in the world, in America, the most hated man in this country when he protested the, the, the Vietnam War, when he changed his name to this strange Muslim name, he was despised. And, and then he earned back some fame and, and some popularity again. But now he was beloved. There's a great line by the writer Stanley Crouch. He said, Ali, when he was young, was a, was a grizzly bear. Ali, when he was um, late in the 70s, when he was popular again, when he was the heavyweight champion, he was a circus bear. He was performing for everybody. And now Ali is a teddy bear. And America just wants to cuddle him and wants to take him in their arms and say, you know, we love you. And that's what happened when he light, when he lit that torch. That was the moment that really cemented who we, who Ali is in our in our minds today. And Frank Sadlow maybe played some small part in it. And and uh, whether he did or not, it's just a beautiful. It's a love story. Muhammad Ali's record player, I think it's Muhammad Ali's record player, is in my basement now. And um, Ali actually had a record player in his car. He loved music. He thought he was a good singer. He thought he would retire from boxing and sing. Um, but he wasn't as good as he thought. Um, but he did love music. And I put together a little Spotify list, playlist of uh, songs that I think Ali would have approved of. Some of them I know he, he listened to. Some of the others are uh, good guesses, I hope. Um, so... Next week on Chasing Ali podcast, I'll tell you the story of um, Ali's brain and what happened to it over the course of his career. For more episodes of this podcast and for more information about Ali and his fights, go to ChasingAliPodcast.com.